this is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst John Todd. Dr. Todd received a PhD in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute and a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts in North America. He has been in the mental health field for over 23 years. A native of Florida, he began his career spending over a decade as a children and families counselor for Hospice of the Florida Suncoast before beginning his private practice in Evergreen, Colorado in 2006. In addition to being a nationally certified licensed professional counselor, Dr. Todd is a member of the International Association of Analytical Psychology and is currently on the board of the C.G. Jung Institute of Colorado. His paper, The Shadow of the Bat, was our focus today and will be published by Psychological Perspectives this summer. This talk was recorded on May 27, 2016, through the magic of Skype. Dr. Todd, you and I actually met last year, last fall, at a conference here in Chicago that was for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, and we spoke a little bit about your writings on bats. That's true. Yeah. So, But first, tell us about the path that you took to become a Jungian Analyst. Well, um, <clears throat> I can... Um, I can easily say that I can blame my wife for this, um, that uh, when I was, I believe, either 18 or 19, um, my wife happened, was my girlfriend at the time, um, happened to be taking a course on, uh, called The Transformation of Myth Through Time that was a Joseph Campbell television course. And I would often, because I wanted to spend time with her, just sit and watch this Campbell, um, these Campbell lectures with her. <clears throat> excuse me, and oftentimes uh, he would kind of begin his lecture when he was explaining whatever he was explaining with a little intro to Jung. Um, and he would give little diagrams about the psyche and, you know, just the kind of Jung's general map of the psyche. Um, and I was so incredibly moved and um, excited um, by the, camp the Campbell material that I knew that whatever I did... Um, after I graduated from college, had to do something, um, you know, had to be connected to that material because I wanted to feel like that all the time. And that feeling of just excitement and enthusiasm about um, the mythological material he was presenting. And um, as I graduated, I just knew that um, I wanted to be an analyst. And I believe by the time I was, boy, 20, I think it was 25 or so, that I had graduated and licensed to be you know a therapist and um, I was certain that um, I wanted to be an analyst and so I in my um, naivete I called up uh, the closest institute and spoke to um, the president of that institute and just wanted to begin my training and he um, honestly was wasn't that kind at the time but he essentially said oh little boy <laughs> um, you know, you have a lot of work to do before you can be an analyst. And oh no! You said wasn't that kind at the time. Well, you know, he was he was he was right. Okay. He was a, he was a little blunt, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, All right. But it, but he he was right. I mean, I, I um, 
and I and my, you know, my 25 year oldness um, and my excitement and enthusiasm, um, I just knew that's what I wanted to do and did not understand the depth of the work and training, um, both personal and, and professional training that it takes. Right. And so I was so angry by him saying, come back, come back in about 10 years or so, um, that I thought, <clears throat> I thought, um, I won't actually won't repeat what I thought there probably is. Oh, please ex- do feel expl- free. Exp- expletive laden. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm uh, sure. Uh, uh, response to, you know, his, his, his response to me, but I immediately knew I, I couldn't wait 10 years. Um, and so I, uh, long story short, I found Pacifica, uh, which is a graduate institute in California that um, the, the focus generally is on Jung and a little bit on Hellman as well, or a lot on Hellman actually. But um, uh, so I began, not, not long after that, I began um, uh, working towards my PhD in depth psychology uh, via Pacifica. So, and, so let me just <laughs> let me just interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sure. But at that point, you had your master's degree in counseling and psychology, yes. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you went to you're referring to the Pacifica Graduate Institute, and yes. is yes. that in Santa Barbara? It is. Well, it's actually just outside of Santa Barbara in a uh, town called Carpinteria. And they offer PhD a PhD program in depth psychology. They do, and uh, also masters. If okay. I'm not- as well. Right. And so you entered that program. Well, I did. And, and it was um, incredibly um, important for my development as an analyst because my master's program was just your basic master's program, which was taught me many important foundational kind of things. But um, like many programs, really, I think they may have mentioned young and passing at best. Right, uh, right. And so it was really important that I did go and have this um, uh, uh, foundation kind of um, fortified, shall we say. Um, I had done a lot of my own work, but certainly the intense um, and in-depth work I did at Pacifica helped me uh, have a better grasp on, you know, the theory itself. And probably within weeks of me finishing my coursework, I applied... um, to a training program to become an analyst. So how long did that take after you uh, acquire your master's degree? How long was the PhD program? Um, it was the actual coursework was, I believe, like three, three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, I think I took, boy, I have to guess here, but I'm guessing I took about two years to actually finish my dissertation. Oh, um, wow. Because it's a long, it's a very at least it was for me, it was a very long and in-depth process. And, um, uh, and I was doing, and I was doing that while working full time and, you know, being, um, you know, a a father of father of two and a husband. And, um, so, uh, it, it, uh, it was a labor, labor of love. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Very large commitment. And at that time, had you had any personal analysis? Well, um, I began, I had had therapy before because Pacifica actually required that I had so many hours with a Jungian-oriented therapist. So I'd had, I'd had some work that was, I would say, Jungian-oriented. But when I entered into, and it was interesting that I began my writing my dissertation and began my analytical training and analysis 
um, when I began writing my dissertation. And so I had to shift to an actual analyst. Um, and um, uh, that was that was the first time that I had an experience, you know, with an actual analyst. So yeah, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that, because that's come up. This podcast, I decided I wanted it to be unique. I wanted to only interview Jungian analysts. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of flack about that. And you're the first analyst I've interviewed that went to Pacifica. And I'd like for you to explain to us just a little bit about just sort of how it differs from other PhD programs as far as you called it Jungian oriented. And I think that there's a little bit of confusion out there as to the difference between a Jungian oriented therapist and a mm -hmm. Jungian analyst, sure. and just what exactly is required to become a Jungian analyst, which is actual Jungian analysis. And I've actually had some clinicians contact me and want to be interviewed for this podcast that weren't Jungian analysts. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not trying to be a snob, I just want mm -hmm. to focus on actual Jungian analysts and Jungian analysis. So would you explain a little bit about Pacifica and then your um, your training with the IRSJA? Well, um, I can I can certainly tell you my experience with Pacifica. I can't talk about Pacifica broadly, but you know my experience with Pacifica was incredible, and it was um, you know Jungian based, but there were many um, say post Jungians, say like James Hellman who were focused on, and it was incredible material, and um, really a, an essential part of my path to being an analyst. And as what they required was, you know, a certain amount of hours of um, therapy uh, with a Jungian-oriented, you know, um, a therapist, and which, and the therapist that I went to was just fine. Now, we're just talking about you getting your PhD. We're not yet right. at you getting your diploma in analytical psychology. Correct. Okay. Now, the difference is, is that when I moved into analytical training, um, it, it was a profound shift in focus, meaning it, it wasn't just um, uh, my, you know, the uh, fo focus on my understanding of, of Jungian theory, which is certainly an important thing. So much of my analytical training was that in, in addition to my personal analysis. So... I had to have hundreds of hours of, I mean, hun literally hundreds of hours of personal analysis. You know, the the requirement at Pacifica was much smaller, and I honestly, I'm not, I'm, I'm blanking on how much they require, but it really was, you know, pretty small relative to the hundreds of hours that I had to be in training. Or I mean, in in and out my personal analysis, and um, also hundreds of hours of. Um, uh, supervision with an analyst, and what that means is, is that I would um, take my work that I'm that I'm doing with my analysands and take it to uh, a seasoned analyst who has had many many years experience with this work and working the material um, with that analyst, and you know that whoever that supervisor was, you know, helping me uh, fine tune my understanding of the unconscious as it was presented. Um, within that case, um, how I could understand um, what was happening, you know, not just within, you know, um, not just with my analysand, but also within myself, because this this isn't just 
then that's one of the wonderful things about you know Jungian work is that it, this isn't just a, about me sitting and across from an analysand and um, uh, analyzing them and analyzing or and you know sharing information. Uh, I'm I'm in it with them, and what yeah. I mean and what I mean by that is is that there is a field that is that is created between the two of us, a connection that is created between the two of us that affects both of us. Yes. Um, and it's that understanding of how uh, not just what's going on with the analysand and his or her, um, you know, his or her issues or wounds or her, their path, um, but also how we affect each other. Um, and um, the, the deepening um, of my understanding and of my work, um, both personally and clinically, uh, I... I don't even have words for, um, and I, and it's a grueling process to become an analyst. Um, but once, um, uh, once you've made it through to the other side, so to speak, um, you're a, you're a transformed person. And it doesn't mean that all your work is done and you all of a sudden are this enlightened being. It's not, I'm not in any way trying to insinuate that, but, um, because of work, all the work is always there, and there's always always grist for the mill. But yes, um, but it's um, it's certainly a transformative, and I would even say initiatory experience. At least mine was. That's for sure. So that was about seven years between you receiving your PhD and you receiving your uh, diploma in analytical psychology. I think it may have even been longer than that. Longer I, than that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, that's the and part of. Part of also what makes my, my path maybe a little more unique is that um, I started so young um, that um, most most of the people that I was in training with were much older than me. And so I began training when I was 30, boy, 31, 32. And most people that I was in training with were at least in their mid to late 40s. And so... Um, uh, it's a little unusual that someone would begin that early. Yeah, I, I began early too, and I, I'm not an analyst, but I had a long analysis. And I started when I was very young, very young. And I know that Jung psychology is sometimes referred to as um, as the psychology of the second half of life. Yes. And I was definitely not in the second half of my life when I began analysis. So I can relate to that a little bit. And would you say it's for all ages? Certainly. I mean, uh, it, um, while I will say that there's no question that so much of his work did have to do with kind of life after 40, so to speak, um, there's no question that, you know, that being either being in the study of this work or being in analysis um, uh, saved my life in many ways. Um, that I don't know who I would... Yes. You know, I, I, I needed that... I personally needed that container, the container of Jung's theory, Jung's ideas, um, and you know, eventually my my analysis um, that help you know ha has helped and continues to help me to heal as a human being. Very well said, and I can definitely relate to that. So this leads me to asking you about your paper which was your thesis for analytical training. And every analyst has one, you know, their unique take on a subject that's, I don't know, maybe numinous for them. Mm -hmm. And yours was uh, bats. So before you tell us about that paper, 
which I actually had the chance to read, and it will be published in Psychological Perspectives, uh, the Jungian Journal, coming up here soon. In the beginning, you relate how the as far back as you could remember, you were drawn to the mysterious, and that even as early as first grade trips to the library, that you say your curiosity drew you to books on the paranormal, the occult, Bigfoot, UFOs, and mythology or folklore about monsters. And, you know, that really got my attention because of my own lifelong interest in those things. And, you know, my first love is actually paranormal radio, which is typically a late night radio. And it was Art Bell. And now it shows like Beyond the Strange, The Mind's Eye, and my favorite, which is End of Days Radio. And I've actually had the opportunity to be on all three of those to talk about Jung's interest in the occult. And, you know, I don't always get a positive response from outsiders about that, but it's very important to me because my interest in those things may have been what drew me to Jung. And I didn't put those two things together until I read your paper. So why did you say that you wrote, given my proclivity to be drawn toward the unknown, it fits that as an adult, I would find myself studying the psychology of C.G. Jung and working with the unconscious? Well, um, you know, uh, all that's true. I mean, very clear, very clearly from a very young age, that's um, where my um, interests were drawn to, and um, I could not get enough of that material. And ha- my, at least, interpretation of that has been, you know, that the unknown has always, um, you know, especially as a, a little guy, that the unknown was equal parts um, fascinating and um, alluring and, you know, scary and terrifying. And, um, you know, certainly as I grew older, you know, that did not change. Um, and it became a, l- a little less scary. Um, but certainly the allure to the unknown has always been there. And, um, and it still is, it still is to this day. And that's part of why I believe that, you know, so much of my, my personal and professional work has to do with the unconscious, which is the unknown realm of our psyche. Um, and, you know, um, even if we're not talking about literal ghosts or literal um, monsters, which which we could also talk about those as well, but you know, all those creatures are alive and well in our psyche, um, and you know, certainly for I mean, I can remember not long ago, maybe like a year ago or so, I began working with a client um, who um, was is came to me because she's dealing with some pretty severe trauma in her past um sent me an email and it it was and she laughed it was a, it was she laughed when it was you know a ha 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 kind of email at the at the at the end but it didn't seem so funny she sent me this little cartoon about what analysis was like and it was these people walking through a haunted house um and wow. you you saw people walking in in the, in the cartoon it was like a a far side type cartoon where people were walking into the haunted house and then walking out looking a little disheveled and frightened. Um, and, uh, and she, you know, literally said, you know, this, this is what going to you know, an appointment with you is like. And, 
at the end, ha ha ha. But then when we when we processed it clearly, um, she ex feels exactly how she feels that there are ghosts that she um, clearly is haunted by, um, and um, you know, and that's not that's not so funny. Um, but it was um, uh, a, a an important point important point for us to sit with in analysis. What in analysis was her owning just how terrifying um, uh, the so-called ghosts in her psyche are to her. Let, let me just you, you, let me just interrupt you there. So I, I've had people ask me this before. Would you say that when somebody sees a ghost or believes that they have been haunted for a period of time, that it's an actual entity outside of themselves? Or is it always an inner figure that's being projected um that i cannot answer um what what i can what i can say is what i think is that um i if i've had more than one person come in and say that they're being haunted literally um and my approach is always I mean, i've personally never experienced a ghost um at least outside of my psyche um i've certainly been haunted by a complex or two but um, I am open as a human. Just as a human being, I'm open to that being a reality. That there are ghosts. Just because I haven't experienced one doesn't mean that you know there aren't ghosts out there. At least that's what I believe. But um, whenever someone comes in, I will ask them about um, this from a literal perspective and try to understand it. And then I'll also ask about um, the metaphor and the symbolic perspective, which means you know, what are, what, what are, what would that person be haunted by? Um, and it's almost always fruitful, um, to do both. Um, because I would say there are very few of us who have not, um, had the experience of being haunted by something psychologically. I see. And, and to me, it's just the, it's the wonder, um, and the, um, awe of the unknown. Um, and, and truly knowing that is is like like I said with ghosts are there ghosts i'm certainly open to that even though i've never experienced it but are, are we haunted and can life feel like a, like you're living in a haunted house sometimes most certainly um and to have the honor of walking with someone you know down their path and help and help them maybe exercise their demons so to speak um or um have a clearing of their psychological space to get rid of those ghosts um, is it's a truly an honor um, and to be able to you know be to make a living and doing this and to be asked into someone's um, personal space like that psychological sacred space really right um, and, and trusted to do so is um, is a pretty um, amazing thing. Yeah. You wrote about a dream that you had had about a bat ear. Oh, right. That was slightly singed on the outer edge. And you brought that dream to your analyst. Um, but what we haven't covered yet is how and when bats entered your life. I recall dreaming about bats. Um, at least all of my adult life. And I certainly had experiences with bats, you know, as a younger person, but they were literal bats. You know, my interest 
particularly symbolically speaking, really peaked when um, when I began my first analysis. Um, I and it's interesting that when whenever um, whenever an analysis is you know begun, uh, you'll often hear analysts talk about you know that first dream, um, and that first dream um, can often kind of it's almost as if the psyche is giving um, giving us the map of um, the territory that we need to um, uh, walk into and um, or kind of give us a little bit of a hint about where it is we need to go. Yeah, and, and I just want to interrupt you there. I'd like to give the heads up to anybody who's interested in beginning analysis in the future. I didn't know about this. I didn't record a dream uh, for my to bring to my analyst for my first session. So heads up to everybody out there who's planning on entering analysis, write down that first dream, because I have no idea what mine was. And I'll never know. Well, and it's called an, an initial dream. Um, and, and it's a real like, um, if, if um, you know, analysts are talking among themselves, you know, or trying to you work on a case together, they'll often say, well, what was the initial dream? And, you know, I'm pretty sure that this was, if this wasn't the very first, it was among the first. Um, uh, my analyst, um, her name was, uh, or is, Kathy Mays, a wonderful analyst. Um, and uh, the dream was that Kathy was, uh, boy, was, was standing in um, the room, my, my son's bedroom, and my son at the time was, I believe, around two years old, and she was holding his hand, and it was a birthday party, and she had a little, like, a little it was kind of almost, it was kind of a cute image, because she was holding a piece of birthday cake like you would at a, a birthday party, mm -hmm. and she was standing there, and it was a very, you know, kind of nice image, and the thing that stood out was she had one human ear and one gigantic bat ear, and it was um, a very tall and it was, it's interesting, and this is what I love about the psyche, is that my way of working with images and um, in dreams in general is that I believe there's there's intention there uh, on some in some way um, from the psyche that you know of all of all the animal ears that that you know she could have had um, it wasn't it wasn't a cat ear and it wasn't a dog ear it was a bat ear. And of all bad ears, it was um, a very big, exaggerated bad ear, which is um, uh, from a particular bat. And so as I entered into the image, and this is just my way of working, not everyone um, works with images this way, okay. but I paid, I paid attention to not just that this was a bad ear, but eventually I went, oh my gosh, that's a, you know, this kind of bat. Um, it's not a vampire bat, and it's not a this kind of bat, it's not a that, it's a this. Um, but the, the bad ear was long, pretty exaggerated, and it had, on the very tips of it, was just singed a little bit. And I can still remember taking it to, to Kathy and you know, sitting down and saying, I had this, the funniest dream. <laughs> and um, when I shared it with her, she just kind of smiled and nodded, and she said, you've picked up on my wound. Um, and um, which, you know, was Kathy's way was to be, uh, or Kathy's way is to be a rather you know, warm and open person. And, um, you know, in the, in the, in the Jungian world, oftentimes what we call this is an image of our inner analyst. And so in other words, um, this simultaneously reflected was an image of Kathy and my, my psyche was telling me about Kathy. Um, 
because she said, you picked up on my wound, which means that on an unconscious level, that my unconscious picked up on her wound um, and said, oh, look, there it is. Um, and her, oh, wait, you're saying her actual wound, her, she as a person. Her, her yes, exactly. The, her, her wounding that she experienced throughout her lifetime was, a, had to, had, was, was represented to me in this image of the bad ear that was sent. So now how would you explain to everybody listening that your unconscious picked up on something in somebody else's unconscious that you had no prior knowledge of and no way of knowing? How is that possible? Well, it's, I mean, we kind of talked about this a, a minute ago. It's, it's the, the sense that when two people, you know, are sitting together in this work, that they create um, this field together. And so what that means is the two of us sit there and are connected in a way. And our egos on, on one level, meaning our conscious selves, are talking. And so um, what I often say to an Alessand is that my, you know, my ego thinks, you know, as, as an experienced professional, my ego thinks, oh, I'm hearing these things about her history or these things about his wounds or whatever. And my ego thinks, oh, this is the path we need to take. Okay. Or this is, you know, what we need to do to address this person's issues. Um, and, and not to say that the ego perspective isn't important because it most certainly is. However, what's more important to me is what the unconscious has to say. So I might with that analysis say, okay, well, let's, let's take this path. And we, you know, walk down this path together that consciously I think as a professional we need to take. And then, you know, her, her dream may come up and say, oh, no, 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 I think this is what we need to, uh, this, is, this is what we need to address, or this is really the problem, or you kind of missed it, <laughs> this is the issue. Right. And so the, the unconscious is constantly compensating for the one-sidedness of the ego. And so in, in my experience with my analyst, um, sitting there with her, and, and I am a, a more, um, certainly a more in, uh, intuitive person. So sitting there together, our, it's not just our egos that are connecting. Our unconscious selves are kind of communicating as well, sort of underneath, so to speak. Okay. Um, and so um, when I had that dream, it was it was my my unconscious simultaneously telling me about Kathy my analyst, but also it was reflective of my own inner analyst, meaning this, there's this, there's the, the simplest way I know to say this is, there's something in me, but the best way the psyche knew um, to represent it was Kathy. Um, and if it wasn't, um, if Kathy wasn't the best representation of this, it would have shown up some other way. Okay, so and, would you say that you are everyone in your dream? that it's not just about Kathy, it's about the Kathy in you, that Kathy is you in that dream? Well, there's certainly um, many paths to understanding dreams, and the one that I, that I, most, um, I am most fond of, really, and, and feel like I feel like it's the best one, at least for the work that I do, is that at the very least, what I would always consider is that every person in the dream is reflective of some part of me. But that does not mean that it doesn't have a literal um, okay. uh, interpretation. So in other right. words, oftentimes, and it's not always this way, but oftentimes, um, if let's say if I have a dream 
about my wife, um, that we are so close um, that um, my dream most likely is, all, all, is true of her. It's probably telling me something about her, but at the same time, it's also telling me something about me. What part of you would that be, your wife, in you? Um, well, classically speaking, she would be an image of my anima. Um, and for in the Jungian world, the anima for a man is um, my kind of my so-called feminine side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jung said that women have something you know that's similar that is their animus, which is their so-called masculine side. And that can get a little tricky because this uh, this theory was developed by a white Swiss man in you know right. the <laughs> yeah. early 1900s. And so there's some gen- many there are many gender. Um, and, um, you know, just gender, gender issues that I would say, uh, are not addressed then because, you know, he was poor guy. He was doing the best he could in the 1900s, right? Um, and the best he could wasn't so bad. So that the anima animus issue is a kind of a, a little bit of a controversial one. And many Jungians think that it's, um, you know, not applicable to today and, and I'm, I kind of sit on the fence with that because I think he was on to something. Uh, do I think it needs to be, you know, broadened and kind of transformed a bit to fit today's understanding of gender? Of course. Um, but I wouldn't throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater. Sure. Sure. And so um, after you relate the dream in your paper, mm-hmm. you said something so interesting. You said, as is so often the case with analysts and analysands, we shared a similar wound. It's true. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say this is true 100% of the time, but it's, it's not uncommon um, for the um, analysands who show up at my door um, to have a similar wound, or at least our wounds are um, uh, in the same ballpark, so to speak. Um, and so... I would say that, you know, the image that that was presented to me in the, with the Battier dream was, you know, the, the showing the capacity to um, hear what, you know, because bats have this amazing ability to, not only do they have, the, this particular bat, this ear um, that was presented, this particular bat not only has echo, uh, the capacity for echolocation, which means that it, it sends out a sound, a little click, that we can't even hear. And then when that sound bounces back, it forms a, an image in its brain of its environment. So that's why that's how it can see in the dark. And so it's al- already giving us an image of being able to see in the dark. So if you interpret that, the metaphor is, is that, you know, the, that the, you know, the analyst has the capacity to... Um, see in the unconscious, so the dark, where others may, may not, may perhaps not be able to see. But this particular bat not only can do the echolocation, it really has little to do with their hearing, so to speak, but um, it also has um, hearing so um, fine-tuned that it can hear, literally hear the wind made by a moth's wing. Um, and um, so that's some pretty darn good hearing. <laughs> um, and so the image that was presented to me was that capacity being you know, the, the singed, wounded a little bit. Um, and so as an analyst, you know, Kathy, I'm sure, was looking at, oh, there's his wound. And not just there's, there's her wound, but here's his as well. Um, and of course, she's holding my, you know, my son, who was two years old at the time, um, 
his hands. So there's little me, right? Um, and there's there's big me in the dream, the ego, and there's little me. Um, and so, you know, and there's my, an image of my inner analyst, so to speak, you know, and the inner, the inner analyst would be my capacity inwardly to, um, uh, understand the, to understand my unconscious, which, which would be whatever surfaces, um, for my unconscious would, could, could be feelings, could be intuitions, could be sensations, um, just understanding, um, my deeper self. So would you say a little bit about your childhood experience with them? Um, are you speaking about the, the island experience I wrote about? Yeah, anything that would kind of show us that this has been with you for a really long time and how your, I don't know, what whatever word you would use, your fascination with bats or your interest in them or how they kept you know popping up in your life, how that was a part of the work that you did as an adult and how you exploring the outer world of bats taught you something about yourself. Yeah, you know, certainly after that dream that I had, you know, with the, the bat ear, um, I was paying more and more attention. Well, you know, I, what does that mean? Right. Um, and what does that reflect for me? And the, the thing that was really, that really kind of um, caught me and you know, caught my curiosity was to this day, and, you know, maybe, you know, I still dream about bats, and so it's not, that, that has not stopped, but I've yet to have a dream that was negative. And so the image of the bat um, was showing up to me in these really positive ways, and it seemed to really kind of clash with our general cultural experience of bats, which is pretty negative. Yeah, because you point out that bats are associated with darkness and evil. Oh, indeed. And, and that's, that's the thing is that my dreams were coming to, you know, they were coming to my dreams, and they were positive. <clears throat> and I was honestly kind of perplexed I, as a, thinking about the literal bat. I never quite got why people didn't, I, mean, I get it, some of them are really unusual looking and kind of, you know, look like little gargoyles, and that's why I can get that they're not. They the, are. I mean, Dr. Todd, they are kind of creepy. I'm sorry. Well, no, but I know I get that. I mean, on, on some of them are almost bordering on grotesque. Yes. And, and, and yet, at the same time, I never had that revulsion to them. Um, and so I was perplexed not only to understand me, but to understand um, the cultural experience. Um, you know, what's what was going on? So it was like this, it was a combination of trying to understand myself and trying to understand that revulsion that people have. Yeah, and I do want to point out, I said that they are associated with darkness and evil, and that is specifically in our Western culture. That's mm -hmm. not all over or throughout time. Oh my goodness, no. That, that, that's, and that was what was fascinating, was I started to dig into um, mythology and folklore around bats, and many of, and I would say the majority of um, the stories, um, uh, you know, fairy tales, etc., right. about bats pre pre the Judeo Christian era um, were not just positive; they were really positive. And what I what I it was interesting that I had this um, phenomenal, this phenomenal synchronistic experience that I was I had started to dig into this material, and I had gone with my family. Um, you know, my wife and kids were, and I were at the zoo um, in uh, Tampa, Florida, where um, I grew up and I actually live in Colorado now, but we were visiting. And um, we went into this um, little aviary type 
um, section of the zoo that had um, animals and birds from uh, Australia. So there were kookaburras and you know um, kangaroos, etc. And uh, they also had um, some bats, and they were you could see them hanging kind of in the corner of the aviary. And there was a little cartoon that was a little plaque cartoon uh, in front of the window. And it said, um, you know, there were two figures speaking to each other. And one of them said, ooh, ick, you know, bats are scary or bats are gross. And the other character says, oh, but bats are an in you know, incredibly important part of our ecosystem. And they provide all these, you know, all these things for our ecosystem that are essential. Um, and if we didn't have bats, we wouldn't have. And it listed all the things. And, and it said, in, in fact, um, the and it's the, the spelling of this is J-O-O-N-G-I-A-N-S. The Jungian tribe, uh, right? <laughs> the Jungian tribe in Australia saw bats as uh, sacred and a god that taught them how to be human. Um, and and I'm I, I was sitting there thinking, no way. And so I wrote this down. I wrote this down on my phone. I typed a little note on my phone and spelled it because I thought I'm going to forget the spelling. So I I got the spelling and I I went home and I went I did the first thing that all scholars do for serious. Um, scholarly research. I went to Google and I and I googled this word and found nothing. And I thought, oh come on! I did not. I'm not making this up. So I probably went five or six pages deep into Google, and, and I found a obscure little reference in an article from an Australian um, psychological journal, not, not psychological, um, anthropological journal. And, um, and I thought, okay, I didn't, <laughs> didn't make this up. And um, I contacted the university, and they were nice enough to give me an article um, and actually sent me several PDFs of these journals about um, uh, tribes that found. And, it, and the reason I couldn't find it was because the zoo had spelled it wrong. Oh, okay. uh, right. And even though um, it is Jungian, it's I forget the actual spelling, but it was something close. And I thought there was an interesting synchronicity that it would sound so much like Jungian. Um, but this, the story that, that came from that article was a fascinating image um, of the Lightbringer. And the Lightbringer is um, uh, an archetype and kind of a mythological motif of... Um, you know, a figure uh, or a character in a story bringing light, meaning bringing consciousness. Um, and um, you'll, there, you'll see if you, you know, look into the image of the Lightbringer, that the Lightbringer um, is an essential um, uh, figure in the um, uh, formation or the coming to uh, consciousness. And so consciousness oftentimes is seen or um, uh, reflected in the image of light. Um, and so you can imagine if you say something dawned on me or you know, and what that means is I became aware of something. So I became conscious of something. So by consciousness, do you mean awareness, knowledge? What do you mean? Um, well, if you compare it to being unconscious. So if you're unconscious of something, you're unaware. Um, it's something that you... Um, uh, and others may see it in you, but you're certainly um, um, unaware of this aspect of yourself, mm -hmm. say. Um, and, you know, the light bringer would um, uh, bring um, the light, so to speak, bring the awareness, bring the consciousness okay. of whatever this is to your um, attention. To so sort of shine a light on it so Indeed. you can see. 
indeed. Um, and the the story was the story of the Munmundi celebration, which is you know all the animal tribes um, gathered together and they were having a big party, and um, all of a sudden arguments start to break out, and the you know this tribe says, "Well, my fur is much you know m- much softer than your fur," and the you know birds say, "Well, my feathers are even prettier than your fur," and there was all this um, kind of um, arguing and um, uh, la- lack of lack of humility, shall we say? And the the creator spirit was so disgusted with them that he he said, "I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm I'm going to punish you by turning the lights out," and takes the sun away. Um, and of course, everything falls into darkness, and the animals are distraught, and they're repentant. But it doesn't matter. Um, their their creator God is not not going to have it. And so each um, tribe is asked, you know, you know, they ask the, you know, the kangaroos, can you find the light? The kangaroos couldn't find the light. They ask the owl, can you find the light? The owl can't find the light. And finally they make it to the lowly bat. And the bat has a boomerang. And the bat throws the boomerang to the south. And the boomerang goes out and comes back. And there's nothing there. And throws it to the west. And come, goes out, comes back. Nothing there. Um, and, you know, throws it to the east, and all of a sudden, wow, you know, something comes back, and it's light. And, of course, the sun rises in the east, um, and um, the other animals ask the bat, what are you doing? And the bat says, I am dividing the darkness from the light. Um, And, first of all, um, it's a wonderful um, image of echolocation. Um, And I'm not saying in any way that that the Aboriginal folks who told the story were aware of echolocation. Maybe they were, um, but imagine that you know it's it's a perfect image of throwing a sound out. So the boomerang is thrown out, and then it comes back, um, and that's exactly what happens in echolocation. They throw a sound out, the sound comes back, and it's almost as if on an unconscious level that these you know native folks um, had understood what was happening. Um, and, and it's also certainly an image of the light bringer. And if you imagine people living in darkness in the dimness of, you know, maybe evolving from being, um, more, uh, and living with a more of an animal type consciousness to, um, becoming more aware and more having that more of that human consciousness that light is certainly a big deal. Um, consciousness is certainly a big deal. And certainly if you, if you don't have electricity and light bulbs, that light's an even bigger deal. Um, and so the light bringer to these people, um, of course, was sacred. How, how could the light bringer not be sacred? And so for an animal and their environment, for them to see an animal and their vi- environment that has the capacity to see in the dark, um, I, I would imagine they would value that um, uh, capacity and hold it sacred as well. You also talk about how the bat is associated with the shadow mm-hmm. and with vampires. So none of that says to me that the bat is the light bringer. So how did this distortion happen? Well, I, I don't know that I would call it a, a distortion because it's every archetype, every image has a positive and negative pole. And the, 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 the word that's often used for it is polyvalent, which means it has a potential to be positive and negative and really everything in between. And so if you 
imagine that on the positive end of the spectrum, um, you have the image of the Lightbringer. Um, and in the, with the early people's mythologies, oftentimes, um, even like many in South, many South American tribes, the, um, the, the word for bat, butterfly, and hummingbird it was either the same or very similar because um, it was an image of, or it was an animal to them that um, uh, pollinated many plants, right? Um, and um, an image of um, this essential part of their lives that um, because if the plants don't get pollinated, then there's a problem and there's no food. Um, and so here you have an, an animal and an image that is associated with seeing in the dark um, that's a sense that's um, uh, seen as connected to you know fecundity and pollination, and even there were you know many there are many bats that are insectivorous, meaning that they'll they only eat insects and particularly the insects that kill our crops, and so you know the, the bat the literal bat was really important to these folks, and it worked its way into their mythology as something that was equally important. And on the other end of the spectrum, we, there are bats, and interestingly, I think there are something like over 1,200 species of bats, and I think three or four of them are vampiric. So an extremely small number of bats are actually you know, parasitic, that they would drink your blood. But they do exist, and so on the other end of the spectrum is um, you know, the image of that kind of vampiric um, uh, creature. And so if you, what I found was, is that um, if you started to see it as, not, as, an, as a metaphor for the contents of the unconscious, so to speak, or at least a relationship with the unconscious, um, that are there complexes that can feed on us? Oh, most certainly. Um, and what, what I mean by feed on us is that there's a limited amount of um, libido or psychological energy available to us within the kind of or the, within our ecosystem, our inner ecosystem, so to speak. And if a complex um, overcomes the ego and feed and takes all that libido from the ego that, that would normally be dis at the, the ego's disposal, all of a sudden the ego probably goes unconscious and the complex takes over. And but the complex dies if you don't give it a, if you don't feed it, so to speak. If you don't get if you don't give it the libido. Would you define libido in this sense? Because I think that we think of libido as something sexual. Um, well, that, that's more the Freudian take, but, but that's the, the Jungian take is libido is um, just the energy, the psychological, almost like flow of energy that is available to us. Um, and we only have so much. So, for instance, if, um, if, our, if, if, if you're, I know that if I'm sick or if I'm tired, um, and my energy is really low, um, then it's more likely a complex is going to come knocking at the door, so to speak. Um, and so I don't, have, I don't have the energy to fight off that complex. Um, and so I think we've all had the experience of, you know, maybe being tired or sick and getting grumpy um, and maybe saying something, you know, snarky or um, uh, with an edge that maybe you wouldn't normally say or you know, f falling into a complex or two um, that normally you wouldn't fall into because you have the energy to fight it off. Does that, that make sense? Um, and if you imagine that on one end of the spectrum, we have the image of the bat that could be vampiric. 
So there's, you know, a complex that could, you know, a content of the unconscious that could not be friendly, right? But you also have the other end of the spectrum that if you have, um, if you're at least working towards having a good relationship with the unconscious, the bat is bringing you, so to speak, light. Um, he's bringing you consciousness. So the unconscious can, um, if you're in, usually, it's not just black or white, but usually if you have, if you're working towards, um, uh, you know, a, con a connection with your unconscious, meaning through dreams or, you know, the many ways that we connect with the unconscious um, through analysis or whatever it is, then oftentimes we're not, um, it doesn't mean we don't have complexes. It means we have probably a better understanding of them and um, our dreams will most likely help us to hopefully heal and resolve them. So it goes from being, you know, something that the, un the unconscious is, can't be trusted because it's feeding on you to the unconscious must be trusted because it's the thing that is guiding you out of um, the dark, so to speak, like, like the light bringer. And so, you know, it, when, I, when you think about like um, what I did in, in, in my paper was I started thinking about all the things that we people typically say about bats that are negative. So the first one I think was blind as a bat. And so you, um, uh, when you think about that, I mean, I'm sure we've all heard that phrase many times. And it turns out that's not true. <laughs> um, so we have an image that already we know is not factual. Um, and so we're projecting something on this bat. Um, most bats have better, it, their eyesight is just as good, if not better, than our own. So already, you know, we have an image of, hmm, th is this just projection, right? And so I moved to another one, which was um, a bat's flight is chaotic. And so people often experience when they see bats flying around, they, they appear, and I can understand that because I've, you know, certainly seen many bats, you know, flying around and they can look chaotic. And when I really started to do research on that, it turns out, I believe, in 2008, they, they have, for, you know, for forever, when they've studied bats, they've seen this microscopic um, coating of hair on their body that they couldn't figure out what it was there for. And just in 2008, they finally figured out what it was. And it's these microscopic hairs that, that, give, um, that, that give them, it's beyond, this is beyond echolocation, that give them this extremely fine-tuned awareness of their environment so they can pick up on the air temperature, the shift in you know, the direction of the wind, and et cetera, et cetera. And literally, the, the word they used in the scientific journal was that it gives the bat an intuitive flight response. So, and what they were saying was that, that it looks as if the bat is responding to something that we don't, we as humans, it's so far beyond our perception that it, it, may, it may look chaotic, but what we, uh, what we perceive as chaotic is actually precision. The, and it's interesting that the scientists would use the word intuitive and, and, and perception beyond what our eyes see. And so what Jung said intuitive was, um, or the, the, how he defined intuitive is perception via the unconscious. And so, in other words, we, not just the bats, but we have the capacity to um, perceive things that are beyond our you know, vision, beyond our ears, you know, the, the, beyond the visual, the, beyond the auditory, beyond the tactile. Um, we have this perception via the unconscious. And so, 
you know, already that starts to fill in, you know, what is it that the bat holds for us um, that we do not trust? Because here we perceive this as chaos um, when it's actually precision. And I would say the same thing about the unconscious, that oftentimes people are so um, at odds with their unconscious or even at war with their unconscious um, that when they get kind of an intuitive hit, so to speak, or like a gut feeling, or they pick up on something that they, they don't understand, it, they can easily brush it off. And what, what to the average person may feel like, oh, that's nothing, or that's crazy, or that's whatever, it can actually be precision, much like the bat. Does that make, does that make any yes, sense? Yes, yes. You've also referred to bats as psychopomps. What is a psychopomp? Well, it's, it's, very, it's very similar to the idea of the light bringer. So the psychopomp is, the, is also it's known as the guide of souls. Um, and so um, the, the psychopomp can show up as a human figure, and oftentimes the, one of the most popular ones that probably most people know is Hermes. And Hermes, from Greek mythology, was that, that god that could, um, he was the messenger of the gods, so he could he could cross that borderline uh, um, between um, the you know, human uh, or mortal and God um, and bring the messages from the gods to the humans. So again, if you, um, if you look at that as, or interpret that as a psychological function, so let's say you see it as the, the, the aspect or the part of our psyches that has the capacity to um, crossover from conscious to unconscious. So, and the, m the more obvious um, example would be the dream. And so, th the dream emerges from the unconscious and breaks into consciousness whenever our defenses are down, usually during sleep, um, and um, and brings us the messages of the gods, so to speak. Um, and but again, if you look look at that, if you take away the Hermes image and think about the bat the bat, you know, emerging from the cave, right, um, um, and, and in the dark. So when we, when we the, the human ego, when we close our eyes at night to go to sleep, um, the bat is emerging. And so, but think about that metaphorically, that as, as we close our eyes, um, the unconscious and our defenses go down in sleep, the unconscious emerges from its cave um, and brings us the dreams um, that really have the potential to bring us, you know, healing and wisdom and guidance, you know, hence the psychopomp. Um, and, you know, the psychopomp can show up often as a, you know, a wise man, a wise woman, or um, an animal. And the bat is an example of that. Indeed. So uh, our talk would not be complete uh, if we don't mention Batman. <laughs> All right. There's a lot to say, I know. You have some history with Batman. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? As, you know, as much or as little as you'd like, but Batman is definitely significant here. Well, you know, certainly. And, you know, um, that's something else that perplexed me um, about our general, the Western culture's repugnance um, um, and kind of um, being repelled by the bat is that we really, in general, don't like bats. The average person finds them creepy. But, oh, my goodness, we'll spend millions of dollars on a man dressed up as a bat. Right. 
you know, and there, and What's there's something, that? exactly, that made me really curious. And, you know, um, as I thought about um, images of the psychopomp, images of the light bringer, um, you know, it, it became clearer and clearer to me that um, I believe that the image of the bat is almost always connected with the unconscious. And, um, and probably reflective of relationship with the unconscious. And so here we have a man who, um, if you just take the kind of classic um, story or origin of Batman, has experienced a significant trauma as a child. Um, and, um, you know, most certainly, um, if we had a literal Bruce Wayne, you know, the you know, Batman's alter ego, so to speak, um, you know, it, it wouldn't be shocking if this fellow didn't need to be an analysis. Um, he's, for goodness sake, his parents died in front of him. Um, and, you know, who, who would not be significantly traumatized by that? But we have this man who has experienced this great trauma um, and then um, in response to it in many ways has donned um, the, um, the guise of the bat. And as I started to look at it and I started thinking about that, um, it, he sounds a whole lot like a shaman um, in the fact that um, shaman do exactly the same thing, that they don the, um, the guise of their animal totem or their animal spirit. And what they're doing is, um, and it's not this simple, but, but essentially what they're doing is kind of invoking the powers of that animal that, that they can, so that they can embody that um, in their work. And, and of course, what shaman do is they, um, they are the intermediary, intermediary between the worlds, the spirit world and the human world. Um, and so, of course, we have there the, the, a very similar image to the psychopomp and the lightbringer, that, that, that capacity to, um, to travel between the worlds and bring healing. Um, and so here we have this man who has donned the guise of the bat, and he's not typically, I mean, it depends on what story you're looking at, but typically not just battling anyone. Um, he's battling um, the foes that really are beyond um, the, uh, the capacity of the police department to handle. So if the police department could handle the Joker or you know, Two-Face or whoever he's fighting, um, they really wouldn't need a Batman. Um, but apparently Gotham does. And um, you could also say that that's very true of the Shaman. Um, the Shaman is handling what the general tribe cannot handle. And, um, and, it's, and, and, and what needs to be done isn't um, uh, uh, anything that the average person could do. It's this capacity to go back and forth between the worlds. Um, and to me, what I wonder, and this is the, just because of time, is the, this is the quick version. The quick version is um, that I believe on some level, I mean, there's certainly could be many interpretations of Batman and revenge fantasies, et cetera, et cetera, but um, that feels too simple and um, it doesn't, doesn't appear that, that people who just take that avenue to interpret him, take the time to go underneath and go a little deeper. But what it feels like it is, is it's this longing um, 
for our um, connection or reconnection with our deeper selves. Um, that we, we, we long for not just a Batman, but our inner Batman, so to speak. We, we long for that capacity. We long for the psychopomp. We long for um, that deeper connection with ourselves. Um, and I think that's what um, we've lost. And so, you know, certainly we can idealize, you know, um, early peoples and their connection to nature. And uh, we can really um, overlook um, that there's good and bad. That, you know, they, they, they too experienced you know, good and bad, and they're, they, they needed to evolve and grow too. Um, but I don't think it's an idealization to say, um, oh my goodness, we lost something when um, we uh, became so, so conscious, so to speak, that we lost our connection to our deeper selves. And, and in doing so, losing our connection to the world, truly. Um, but, um, you know, it's interesting, in the newest Batman film, uh, he has... Yeah, I believe he has two dreams, maybe three, but there, there, there are two that really stand out. And the first one was he is at the bottom of a well, um, and so he's under the earth in the unconscious, right? Um, and he is literally being lifted, and you can see it's the, the camera angle is you know, it's aiming up. So you're seeing the boy being lifted by the bat to the light. Um, so they're, you know, literally bringing him to the light. So it's the perfect image. I was watching this in the theater thinking, oh my gosh, there it is. Um, there, there's the light bringer. And then later you see, um, uh, an image is rather gruesome, but it's a, you know, a vampire, vampire-like image, um, that he dreams. And so it's very clear that in this telling of the story, he's wrestling with both, um, both ends of the archetype, and so often in the, with early peoples, the the image of the bat was connected with the feminine. Um, and um, in that shift, um, you know, from that we had when the Judeo-Christian tradition to really came to prominence, from the matriarchal to the patriarchal, um, the bat changed from that positive. Um, you know, uh, light bringer type image to an image of the demonic. Um, and you see both in that latest Batman versus Superman film. Um, and, and interestingly, at least my interpretation of the film, what the film pivots on um, the relationship to the feminine. Um, literally, the whole film turns. Um, everything in the film just um, takes a quick... Um, turn in a different direction when the issue of disconnection from the feminine is brought up. Um, so anyway, so I won't um, go off on that path because that's a, another, um, another topic. But So just real quickly, what is the antidote then? Antidote to... To, to identifying with the dark side of the bat and you said that he was struggling with... Um, the, the positive side and the negative side. So wh what do we do to stop projecting these demonic things onto the bat? Well, what I would say is, at least in my, you know, my, my take on things is it's about the unconscious. And if we, um, we have, so, and, and it's not, I am not trying in any way to say that the unconscious doesn't have a dark side because the positive and the negative are all contained within, you know, within the unconscious. And 
um, it's kind of like um, um, the idea of having bets in your belfry, right? Um, can, can the unconscious overwhelm us? It certainly can. Um, can we be swallowed up by the unconscious at its worst? Most definitely. And so there we have that negative pole um, of the archetype. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to in any way, you know, candy-coated or make it all sunshine and um, butterflies. It, it's, there's, it's, there's, you know, a dark side and there's a light side and there's everything in between. But um, my personal and professional experience is that the more that we work towards having a healthy and positive relationship with the unconscious, um, the, the more that kind of evens out and becomes less extreme. And so we're, we're less likely to be overwhelmed by the unconscious or you know, fed on by those complexes if we become aware of those complexes, if we, if we turn towards the unconscious and make a form of relationship. It's like having a relationship with this inner other you know, within us um, and, um, you know, when that, um, when that bridge is crossed, when that bridge is built, for goodness sake, um, all, all of a sudden, um, you know, the, we have this ally at our disposal that, um, will help us, um, to be, um, to find balance and wholeness. And really that's, that's so much of what the unconscious, the relationship with the unconscious to consciousness is about is, about compensation and about balance, that the unconscious is, is always trying to compensate for the one-sidedness of consciousness. And um, what happens is, is if we, it's almost like it's knocking at the door, knocking at the door, knocking at the door, and if we don't answer, it'll break the door down. Uh, um, and our job is to learn how to, at the very least, listen. And, I, and I'm not telling you that every dream that a client comes in with or that I have personally, I understand I don't, um, but I'm going to try um, because most of the time if we um, dig around enough, we'll find that nugget of gold um, 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 uh, in the dark. Um, and, and it's all about listening to those messengers, listening to those psychopomps, um, to those light bringers because, you know, in, in reality, the unconscious is always, you know, some people say, and I, I, believe this to be true, we're always dreaming. Um, the unconscious is always trying to connect with us. It's just that for most of us, whenever it's, we close our eyes and go to sleep, that we have a clearer channel, so to speak, or a clearer um, connection with the unconscious. But you know, my, my, my guess is, is that the unconscious is always there trying to show us what we're not seeing. Yes. Thank you. And I, I think we've found that uh, nugget of gold here with you today, Dr. Todd. Thank you so much. I just want to mention in closing that in June, you're going to be presenting at the first Jung Midnight Sun Conference, Nature, Psyche and Culture in Fairbanks, Alaska, actually, along with our next guest, Lara Newton. And that's from June 24th to 26th. Uh, it's hosted by the C.G. Jung Society of Northern Alaska. And you're going to be presenting on the shadow of the bat material. It's true, um, and actually, you know, you know, Laura, yeah, Laura and I will be there, and Laura and I also are, um, often lecture and teach, um, you know, in in the continental <laughs> U.S., meaning um, 
we, there's a uh, institute, the CGJIC, which is the C.G. Young Institute of Colorado, um, where Laura and I both um, often lecture and teach, you know, in Denver. That's wonderful, and I'm looking forward to speaking with her next uh, month. So, Dr. Todd, thank you so much for your time today and all of the wonderful information you shared with us. And when your paper is published, I will link put a link to that on our website. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. John Todd, for his patience and cooperation and for how generous he's been with his time. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information about Dr. Todd, as well as links to his upcoming presentations. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Google Play Music. With gratitude to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London. And you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.